Pastor Corey here with Heights Church. Thank you for listening to our sermon podcast. If you would like more information about Heights Church, simply go to weareheights.org or follow us on our Facebook page. If you're looking to get plugged into a church, feel free to reach out to us via our website by simply clicking contact, and we will help you find a similar church in your area. Hope the podcast serves you well, and thanks for tuning in. We're currently in a series uh, in the Psalms, and we've uh, started off the Psalms, if you recall, if you've been walking with us, uh, just really looking at how does the gospel speak directly to our emotions, just kind of getting into this reality that we just come out of the last two years of some significant turmoil. Uh, a lot of, as we talked about the first Sunday we launched this thing, man, that I've had to coach and counsel and disciple people through anxiety, through depression, through literally like PTSD, um, all revolving around COVID. And so when we stepped into the Psalms, the hope was that we uh, would be able to hear the gospel, hear God's voice a little bit louder than we hear our emotions, but we wouldn't so like move our emotions to the side that we don't pay any mind to them, but we just wouldn't allow them to speak louder than God's voice. And so our emotions are important. They're indicator lights on the dashboard. Most certainly we need to be mindful of them, pay attention to them. But what happens whenever we listen to our emotions louder than we listen to the word of God kind of erupts itself in something called chaos. It becomes really dangerous, really messy, really quick. So we kicked off the series really looking at some of those emotions. We talked about like angst and fear and depression, anxiety, joy, uh, all sorts of different things the first few weeks. We're now like 13 weeks in on it and we've settled into Psalm 119. And whenever we come into Psalm 119, I ask the question, do you love the voice of God? Do you love the voice of God? And what was cool about that is we came out of that question, that sermon, or going into that sermon rather, and people didn't even know that that was an option. Like, I didn't know you could love the voice of God. I didn't know you could hear the voice of God. I didn't know that that was something that was on the table and offered to me. And so we just decided then to even extend the, the series. We extended it another five or six weeks. And so that's why we're still in it just to help us learn how to do a better job of meditating and just sitting at the feet of Jesus. And so I would ask the same question, do you love the voice of God while we're sitting in Psalm 119? Because Psalm 119, the longest psalm, probably written by King David over the course of his life, is 176 verses. I've shared this every week. It's 176 verses. And of the 176 verses, 171 of the verses speak to the voice of God in some way using some words that are synonymous, like the psalmist is begging for the word, begging for precepts, begging for God's statutes, begging for his commands and his commandments to be given to him. So out of the longest psalm, out of the psalms, there's only five verses that do not speak to the voice of God. And so the one thing that we know about the psalmist here is that he loves the voice. We have this incredible literary work that's been given to us where this man is just pleading with the Father. Give me more. Give me more of your voice. Psalm 119, 33 through 40 is what we're in today, and the psalmist is coming, and he's looking at God, and he's kind of viewing him in light of a teacher, and he's going to give us eight petitions. So if you're a note taker, if you're online, there's eight petitions that he's going to make, the psalmist is going to make to the good, to this great teacher, and what it is going to teach us today from the psalms is how to pray. And so a lot of kids being up here for child dedication this Sunday, right? If you don't know how to pray for your kids, I would encourage you just to take some notes or just read the first word of Psalm 119, 33 through 40, and you'll do pretty good. 
If you don't know how to pray with your spouse or if you don't know how to just plead with the Father, or maybe you're in a situation or a season in light of emotions where you're like, Corey, bro, I literally don't even know what to pray. Like, I don't even know I have it in me right now to pray. I would encourage you to just, just Psalm 119, 33 through 40, just read the first few words of each verse, each sentence, and it will be enough because if we're honest, and sometimes that's all we have, right? If we're really honest with where we're at, And so eight requests, eight petitions to draw the psalmist near to the teacher, eight requests to help the psalmist finish well in the world. In light of that, man, there's a difference between hitting a season as a Christian and finishing well. When you think about kids going to student camps, how many of you were raised going to student camps? I've only ever went to one or two. I can only see a few of you. Only a few of you? Really? Okay, it's good to know. Cool. Okay. Yeah, well, then you might recall, like, you go to this camp, and what happens, man? You hit the quote-unquote camp high right? And you think, man, you could walk on water with Jesus by the time you're done. And I think Holy Spirit, tongues of fire fell down on you on that last night. You rushed to the altar, received Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And then on Wednesday, forgot about everything that happened at camp that week, right? That's a season, right? That's a season of emotional high. Maybe the Spirit did some work. I don't want to downplay that, but that's a season. There's a difference, church. There's a difference between just settling into a season and finishing well. Like, the Lord doesn't want you to just experience a season of his faithfulness, but he wants you to finish well where he can look you in the eye one day and say, well done, good and faithful servant. That doesn't mean everything is beautiful this side of the kingdom. It doesn't mean that everything's easy, but it means it's worth it. So today we get eight requests that would totally and completely set us free, and yet at the same time are wildly difficult to ask. Difficult to ask. Let me ask you this before we get into it. Is it possible that your emotions are all over the place, Because you've been praying the wrong prayers. Is it possible that your emotions are scattered? That maybe you feel anxiety, maybe you feel disconnected, maybe you feel a little disassociated from who God is and what God is doing? Is it possible that your emotions, like you are experiencing suffering or you're experiencing some of these other things because you're praying the wrong prayers? And press that a little bit further, I would ask you this. If you were to be really honest with yourself right now, and in church, for some of y'all, is the hardest place for you to be honest, If you were being honest with whatever your biggest prayer is for like this week, for this month, for this year, if you were really honest about it, what does that prayer reveal about the way you view God? When you think about what you're asking, like if you look at me, okay, this last week, okay, I had kids in my house that had things coming out of every end, every hole in their body this last week coming out. Anybody else with flu season? Dude. I was like, how is this possible? I've not slept in eight days. If you're like, you seem crazy, like, because I am. I'm so sleep deprived, right? I've had kids with things. We've had liquids on things I didn't even know they could reach. It's been insane for the last week. And so what happens then is like, I go into that moment and I'm pleading with God. This isn't a bad prayer. It's just not a kingdom prayer. I'm pleading with God like, God, could you please just stop having things come out of my children? We got brand new carpet upstairs, $3,000. And I'm like, this, this is what we're dealing with? Like, could you just stop doing that? Could you make this stop, right? That's a, that's a good prayer, but what does that reveal about how I view God in that moment? If that's my constant prayer life, and I think this is probably true for most of us, myself included, uh, we don't view God as this big, glorious God that sits on a throne, keeping everything in orbit. We view him more of a, of a genie. Like, I'm going to pull out my proverbial lamp, let's call it a prayer. I'm going to rub that thing a few times, and then I'm just going to start making requests of him. And what happens whenever he doesn't answer my request is I get mad at him. 
My emotions start to shift. I get angry. I get frustrated. I turn the stubborn little kid that I'm praying for right now, and I feel a little disillusioned about who God is. Right? That's a slave and master mentality if we think about that. Like, think about that. You have Jesus Christ himself sitting on the throne, literally keeping everything in orbit across an ever-expanding cosmos, and we have the audacity to come in into that throne room, into the Holy of Holies by the power of the Holy Spirit. Look at this Jesus sitting on the throne, and then have the audacity to be mad at him whenever he doesn't immediately answer our request. What is that? That's a, slave, that's a master-slave mentality. I'm coming in as the master saying, you need to do what I have requested of you to do. And if you don't do that, well, I'll just remove you from the plantation. How, how, how dare you have the audacity to not respond to me? And if we're honest, that is how we pray. Because we come in, instead of just sitting and being present with the Father, we make these audacious claims. We get mad at him. We get frustrated. And in that, our emotions erupt. Tell me I'm wrong. Exactly what we did. And so what I want to do is give you a big idea is this. The big idea is your prayers reveal how you see God, but not always how you should see God. Your prayers will reveal how you do see him, most certainly, but they're not necessarily going to reveal how you should see him. God's word is going to give you a picture of how you should see him. Your prayer now, coupled with God's word, will encourage your prayer life. There's three things that we're going to see. We're going to see prayers of surrender and submission. Uh, prayer about nearness and expectation, and prayers about being just in the presence of God. The text literally, praise the Lord, it just teaches itself. It preaches itself. You're like, bro, I feel like you're just repeating yourself over and over again. It's because it literally just does the job for me today. It's incredible. Me and God totally duped you guys this week. All right, let's start with prayers of surrender and submission. If you're ready, say ready. Ready. Here we go. Psalm 119.33. 119.33. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes. That is, that your word would be taller, louder than every other word. Statutes. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole entire heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Now, this is just three of those eight petitions. He says, teach me, lead me, or teach me, give me, lead me. This is a proper prayer, church. Like, if you don't know how to pray, and you're in some season where you've come in, like, maybe you're in a season of suffering or celebration. Maybe you just literally have come in today, and you don't know much about Christianity, super skeptical about the whole thing. You're like, I don't know where to begin. I don't know what to do. I would literally say, just write down, teach me, give me, lead me, because that is a prayer right there that will literally change every single aspect of your life. That's why I say like they're easy to pray, but they're like they're going to change everything about you. And if you genuinely come before the Father and you say genuinely, teach me, O oh Lord, the way of your statutes. Well, now all of a sudden, what you've done is you put yourself into a posture of surrender that says your word, your statute, then now speaks louder than every other word in society, every other word in culture. And if you're going to pray that prayer out, then you've got to respond to that prayer. Are you tracking? And so if you're going to come in, you're going to say, teach me your statutes, make your voice louder. Now I've got to respond to that. If you're going to say, give me understanding, if you're going to say, give me understanding, well, now everything in life has to be altered and shifted because we come from a Western society that literally every aspect of our society stands in opposition of this, every single aspect of it. 
And so if you're going to pray the prayer, God, give me understanding according to who you are, according to who your son is, according to what the Holy Spirit does, according to what holiness and righteousness and goodness and what it looks like to be the church, give me that understanding. You have to then also recognize that understanding supersedes every other understanding that exists. Do you see how that begins to change? Every single millisecond of your existence has to change whenever you pray these prayers. If you're going to say, lead me in the path of your commands, for I delight in it. Like, that's a prayer that, if we're being honest with ourselves, we don't necessarily always delight in his path. We don't always delight in his ways. Knowing his ways are not our ways, his thoughts are not our thoughts, that doesn't mean I immediately show up and I'm like, I'm all in. I'm all in on whatever you got for me today, right? And so if you're going to genuinely pray, lead me in the path of your commandments of your law, of your literal, of your character. That's what the commandments do. They reveal the very character and nature of God and reveal that we don't match that. And so if you come in and you say, lead me in that path and your commands and your character and your righteousness, for I delight in it, more often than not, I don't know about you, I just need to pray and ask the Lord to help me to delight in it. Like, this is not my prayer. Lead me in your path of commandments, for I delight in it. Rather, it's like, God, I see your word. I see your commands. Could you just help me delight in it today? Help me find it good. Help me find it like King David says where it's honey on my lips. He's like, oh, it's so good. It's so good. I'm like, I want that. Anyone else? Like, dang, give me some honey, Lord. What's up? Sometimes it feels like just trudging through the dark in the mud, man, if we're honest, right? Lead me in your path and your commands for that I may delight. This is a prayer of Surrender, church. This is the psalmist coming before the teacher, and he's saying, give me this. And there's this humble confidence that is there where he deserves, the psalmist deserves nothing. And yet, because of God and his work and his coming Messiah, the psalmist, while he's done nothing, is deserving of everything. Every single aspect of God's goodness is given over to this psalmist, not because of anything the psalmist has done, but because of what the better psalmist is going to do in the future. And so he's here in this humble confidence saying, I want this. I need this. Is this what our prayer life looks like? Or in moments of turmoil at 3.30 in the morning when you have stuff everywhere in your house you don't want in your house, are you just saying, Lord, just heal her. Just make it better. I just want some sleep. Man, are you coming into the presence of God in this way and saying, God, thank you for this moment, this opportunity of surrender. This is not planned, so bear with me here for a moment. Uh, whenever Emma was sick this week, whenever Emma was sick this week, I shared this in the morning meeting, that uh, we were having a conversation about Jesus. And two weeks ago, she asked me, my nine-year-old, Emma, she said, uh, Dad, how do I experience God if he's not here with me? And so we started talking about some different things, and we talked about the church, and we said, hey, the, well, the church is like your, your brothers and sisters, your a plethora of moms and dads. I mean, use the word plethora, talking to a nine-year-old, but a bunch of moms and dads, you know, mommies and daddies that love you and protect you and care for you. And so while you might not physically experience Jesus in some ways, you do, you do actually through the church. And, and mommy and daddy, we get to read the scriptures with you, and, and the word is, it's alive, it says, and it speaks to you, and God speaks to you through the word. And we do this through prayer. It was a really cool conversation right before bed. And then... Whenever I was sitting on the couch with her the uh, day before yesterday and she was sick, I mean, I just felt like this stirring in the spirit. And, uh, and I said, hey, babe, I just, I did say it in this way. I said, hey, babe, I know you're sick and you're suffering, but your suffering is not meant to pull you away from Christ and pull you down away from Christ. It's meant to build you up into Christ. 
And while it might not make sense to you in your nine-year-old brain, I say that all the time, while this might not make sense to you at nine years old, um, your suffering right now actually helps you identify with Jesus' suffering in your place. And so I want to pray that you would learn to enjoy this moment. That's pretty deep for a nine-year-old, right? She's like, I just want to keep water down, you know? <laughs> like, I hear you. But you see, like, that's like, like, this, like, that's the stuff that the psalmist here is getting at. When he says, teach me, give me, lead me. What he's not doing, he's not coming in and saying, can you immediately make these requests for me? He's just asking for more of God, right? Whenever you come to, in prayer to get God, you will get everything. But if you come in prayer to only get what you want, you might get nothing. You might end up in disarray. That's the first thing, posture of surrender, prayer of surrender. Second thing he says is prayer of nearness and expectation. Prayer of nearness and expectation. Verse 36, I love this too. It just gets worse for us. Incline my heart to your testimonies. Oh my gosh, not to selfish gain. Come on, somebody. Can we just stop right there or what? Incline my heart to your testimonies. That's to your, to your covenants, to your faithfulness is what he means when he says that. Not to selfish gain. Verse 37, turn my eyes from looking at worthless things. Come on. Anybody? And give me life in your ways. Confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. There's so much I want to say. I'm going to stick to the text. Incline my heart. Turn my eyes. Confirm to your servant. My gosh, if you don't know what to pray, pray that. If you cannot think of anything, if you can't muster up the strength to utter anything else, just simply say this, incline my heart, turn my eyes, confirm your promises to me. Let me ask you a question tonight. Start asking us two years ago. Whenever you come in prayer, when you come before Jesus, do you find Jesus useful or do you find Jesus beautiful? Two years ago as a church, we started asking this question before COVID even hit. Do you find Jesus useful or do you find Jesus beautiful? You see, a religious heart, whenever they come in prayer, is coming in prayer only because they find Jesus useful. They're coming in with that master mentality, with that genie mentality, and they're saying, hey, what can you do for me today? How can you show up for me today? But man, if you find Jesus beautiful, then this prayer right here is it. What, what the psalmist is saying is like, I see the beauty of the Father. Incline my heart, turn my eyes, confirm your promises to me. Remind me of everything that you have done. Remind me of all your covenant faithfulness from Adam all the way through to where the psalmist is in history, across all of the different covenants, that's promises, across all your promises to all of your people, God. Could you remind me in this moment of how beautiful you were as you were dealing with a bunch of misfits? Like the church hasn't changed much yet, has it? Right? Just as they're all jacked up in the Old Testament, so are we. And so he's saying, literally, and this is King David, an adulterer, King David, a murderer, King David, who danced naked in the streets, and while it was to the glory of the Lord, was still in sin. And he's saying here, as, think about it, as King David, and he's saying, God, incline my heart, turn my eyes, confirm your promise. This is a plea from a man that's been ridden with sin, and he's been called and appointed the king of Israel. How much more do we need that? As men and women who have been called and appointed by King Jesus to live on mission in this kingdom. Incline my heart, turn my eyes, confirm your promises to me. Do you find Jesus useful in your prayer, or do you see him as beautiful? Like when you sit there at his feet, do you find him worthy to just sit in silence for a season? Like some of you don't need to just spend seconds with the Lord. You need to spend minutes. Some of you don't need to spend minutes. You need to spend hours. Some of you have went decades just making requests and not actually sitting and listening to him. Is it possible your emotions are a little messy because you only see them as useful and not as beautiful? 
Maybe we are praying the wrong prayers. Here's the deal. We need to get to his feet, church. We need to pray a prayer that says, incline my heart, turn my eyes, confirm your promises. I heard a a pastor say uh, this week, in the next seven days, think about this, in the next seven days, you're going to get hit with somewhere between six to 10,000 marketing ads in your brain. In seven days, think about that. 10,000 ads that are all coming at you like a raging river. Western influence hitting you in the heart and hitting you in the mind. And what are they saying? Man, you deserve this. You deserve that. You're just a little bit more awesome than everyone else. You do deserve to have a bigger house. You would be more happy if you had 200 square feet if you did that add-on. You do deserve this outfit or that outfit. Don't actually deal with your emotions. Just come pay for it. With Just come do, just, I don't know, buy into some material. Just go to Target. Who else goes to Target when you're super frustrated? Okay, there's like some shy. Okay, I do it too. I love Target. I suffer at the idol of Target all the time, Target. And so, but right, like every ad, think about it. And you're like, I don't know, bro, that sounds a little made up. Well, how about this? Your Spotify ad, because you're too cheap to pay $10 a month, what happens every six songs? You get hit with an ad, don't you? Right? You're too broke to pay $8 a month for Hulu, so you borrow your friends who's also broke. Between every show, what do you get? You get ads. Right? Everything on Facebook, everything on social media, if you're looking at social media as a whole, whether it is TikTok and you're scrolling or it's Facebook, they have 100%, 100% sold the margins of Facebook. We can just mention, somebody just mentioned something, Samsung. On your phone later, you're going to have Samsung stuff on your phone. Am I right? It's 100% going to happen. That's not like conspiracy. That's just the reality that we live in. Right? Alexa listens in like two-minute increments all the time. So Amazon will pop up things to sell you, literally. It's literally what happens. Algorithm after algorithm after algorithm that is literally detailing and dictating every single second of your life on social media is running behind the scenes to tell you how awesome you are and what you deserve. Am I right? So should it throw us off completely that our prayer lives are ridden with idolatry? If everything in the world is telling us that we're a little bit more awesome than everyone else and we deserve everything that our little sinful, idolatrous hearts desire, it only makes sense then that when we went into the throne room of grace to be able to make requests of our Father, we only begin with request. Dad, could you do this? Dad, would you do this? It only makes sense that we turn into babbling toddlers whenever he doesn't answer the prayer we're praying because we're praying the wrong prayer. Like, he's always answering the prayers. The question I have is, are we finding Jesus useful in that moment, or are we finding him beautiful? Because if we go to him and we're only finding him useful, we're not going to have the answers that we want. But man, if we can pray this prayer, incline my heart, turn my eyes, confirm your promises, Lord, and then move into petition, man, everything is going to change. Everything is going to change. Can I further, can we keep pushing on that? I think I like that. Can we keep, we'll keep pushing on that. Psalm 30, or yeah, 37, verse 37 and 38, man, they put us all into a corner. And so what happens then, whenever you are in God's word, when you're reading God's word, and you're, whether it's in the Psalms or the New Testament, regardless of what you're doing, there should always be a moment where you feel confronted by God's word and the Holy Spirit. I would argue that in your regular reading of God's word, if you've not found yourself backed into a corner, you've not actually satisfied what he's called you to read that day. That you should read to the point of you can see God clearly and see who you are apart from him and then be moved to excitement and passion and zeal for who you are in him. Does that make sense? And so there's this 
um, this term called the fallen condition focus of the text. I'm just going to keep pushing on this for a second. Psalm 37 does this to us. It reveals a fallen condition. It reveals the fallen condition focus that is right here in this text. On Tuesday, we do worship planning meetings where Jess comes up with like the call to confession we do every week. We talk about a fallen condition. We talk about what sin is being revealed in the text. It backs us into a corner. Whenever you hear the voice of God, when you hear the word of God, when you're engaging in his word and the spirit is revealing who he is to you, there should be a moment, church, where it backs you in deep into a corner and all you can see for just a second is your fallen condition. This is what the word of God does. Hebrews 4.12 puts it like this. It says, for the word of God is living and active. We can put this on t-shirts and coffee cups all the time, right? For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit of John's joints and marrow, and here, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No one ever wants to talk about that part. Everyone's always like, yeah, word of God, living and active, cuts through joint marrow. But no one ever wants to camp out here. The word of God discerns the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And so there's a moment, verse 37 reveals to us whenever we come to this text, dude, that we should feel this fallen condition. We should feel this reality that we love having six to 10,000 advertisements coming at us, telling us how awesome we are. We love, as Jess said, at least in the first service, that we love to kind of put God's word aside and put God's voice aside. Say, no, no, let me knock out laundry. Let me go pick up the kids. Let me run this errand, and then I'll come to the word. Why do we do that? We do that because we have six to 10,000 advertisements coming at us saying, you don't need Jesus. But what you do need is some materialism. What you could use is a little decor in here. Just put a little wallpaper up over here. That'll be the thing that'll actually satisfy you. Right? You don't need Jesus. You just need Skip and Joanna. And if you do that, is that her name? Yeah. What's her name? <laughs> Hold on. Case in point, how many of y'all knew his name was Chip? Sinners right there, okay? Sinners. I'm just playing y'all, see? <laughs> I don't know his name, dude. I don't care what his name is. Thoughts and intentions. Hey, settle down. We have a sermon to preach up here. <laughs> but you should desire, look, when you come to the Word, you should desire that pressure. Uh, a few weeks ago, I don't know if she's in here, but Laura Henry uh, came up to me, super sweet, bubbly. She's in my missional community, and she came up a few weeks ago uh, whenever I was teaching on something. And she said, man, Corey, I, I feel like whenever you were preaching, like, you just had me backed so deep into a corner. And she said, I just, I felt like, okay, like, I invited a friend. <laughs> when, do we, when do we get to get out of this corner? When do we get to get to, get to the good stuff, right? The reality is this. If you come into God's word and you don't ever experience that fallen condition, there is nothing good. Like, there's no need for Jesus. If you come to God's word and it doesn't expose you and it doesn't confront you and it doesn't open you up and sift you out and reveal sin and reveal unrighteousness and reveal how you don't look like Jesus in very specific areas of your life, in your, literally in your thoughts and in your mind, if the word of God does not expose you like that, there is no need for Jesus. And so, like, the prayer that we have to pray is that of the psalmist, we literally need to plead with the Father that he would incline our hearts and turn us, and he would confirm for us his promises, because everything else in the world is telling us we don't need him. Everything else, and happiness, and hope, and joy, and glory is not going to be found in a seven-inch screen in the palm of your hand. It's found in Christ. 
Like he's the only one that is going to give you all of the assurance that you actually desire. He's the only one that's ever going to give you every bit, of, every ounce of joy that you could ever imagine for all of eternity, even in desperate seasons. Nothing else is going to do that. It's not some advertising campaign. It's Jesus Christ. He is the redeemer. He is our hope. He is our joy. He sent the spirit. He's literally done everything to save us and redeem us. And in this moment, the psalmist is saying, incline our hearts to that. Turn our eyes to that. Confirm the promise in that. Right? That's what my job is to do, is to preach in such a way right, that the, the fallen condition leaps off the page. Like I want people to come up and say, dude, I was back so deep into a corner that only the hand of Jesus himself could walk me out. I think that's a good job. I did a great job that day, right, in concert with the Holy Spirit and God's word. When you feel like the wall press against your shoulder blades, that's not me alone. That's the Holy Spirit and his word. He's inclining your heart. He's turning your eyes. He's confirming his promises. You tracking? That's not just me. That's the, the word of God in concert with the spirit. If you go to a church, you leave here, you go to a different church. Not that I nail it every week. I'm not saying that. But if you go to a church, man, you don't feel like someone's backed you into a corner. That cat ain't preaching the gospel. That's it. He's not preaching God's word. There's no way you can read this and climb my heart that I may keep your commandments forever and not feel like I can't do that. I can't do that. Turn my eyes. We spend an average of seven hours on social media a week. Just like, oh, I mean a day. It's a day, not a week. Seven hours a day. If you work for eight and you're on social media for seven, I don't know how you raise your family. Right? We need this. Turn my eyes. Confirm your promises, your covenant faithful promises. I need them. It takes a literal act of God, church, to redirect and realign us so we can sit silently at the feet of the Father. That's all. Second point. Third point is this. Prayers for presence. Check this out. Super awesome prayer. 39. Turn away the reproach that I dread, for your rules are good. Behold, I long for your precepts. In your righteousness, give me life. This is number seven and eight for the petitions here that the psalmist is going to This is a prayer of, of presence. And what I mean by that is that the prayer is so simple. Verse 39. Turn away the reproach. Turn away the judgment that I dread, I would ask, do you, judge the, do you dread the judgment of the Lord? If you, don't judge, if you don't dread the judgment of the Lord, your prayers will lack unction. They'll lack power. If you don't dread the judgment of the Lord, not just on yourself, as a believer, we will be judged, by the way, but most certainly non-Christians. As a Christian in the room, if you don't dread the judgment of the Lord that's coming to non-believers, you're going to pray prayerless prayers. Powerless prayers, self-entitled prayers, selfish prayers, self-righteous prayers. You're going to pray prayers to a genie, not to a God that can move heaven and earth to redeem someone. Our number one greatest focus we can have as missionaries here is praying prayers. He says, turn away the reproach that I dread for your rules are good. He's saying, then 40, behold, I long for your precepts and your righteousness Give me life. This is a prayer, the prayer of repentance and faith. I'm going to let the cat off the bag here. Okay? Repentance and faith is not something you just do one time, church. Like you didn't walk in Iowa or read some track or go to that youth camp I mentioned earlier and pray some prayer of repentance and faith, and you did it one time, and now you're good and done for the rest of your life. A prayer of repentance and faith is the very path that the Christian should walk every day. 
Like, I don't know about you, but every single day I have got to pray this prayer. God, take away my sin, the judgment that comes from sin. Take away my sin and give me life. If you don't know what to pray, then pray this prayer. God, Father, take away my sin and give me life. That's not just a sinner's prayer to lead someone to faith. That's a Christian prayer because we are simultaneously sinners and saints. Like, we need this prayer every day of our lives. When I'm mad at my kids because they can't help being sick and it's 3.30 in the morning and I wake up as a 37-year-old grown man and I have the maturity of that moment as a nine-year-old who's sick. I need this prayer, don't you? God, take away my sin and give me life. Whenever I'm arguing with my wife about the capital campaign and how much money we should give or not give, and that argument literally ends in tears and no solution. I need this prayer, Father in heaven, Take away my sin and give me life. Whenever I have slept literally none for the last seven days and have to get up and preach a sermon, and, and I worry more about what you think about me than what the Father in heaven thinks about me. You know what prayer I'm praying when I woke up at 3.30 this morning? Father, take away my sin and just give me life. Take away all the expectation. Take away all the feeling to be impressive. Take away all of it. Just as a son, Lord, could you just do that for your son? Take away my prayer. Take away my sin and give me life. This is a prayer of repentance and faith. People talk about the sinner's prayer as if it is only good for the non-Christian. That's ridiculous. This is how we experience sanctification and grow into the image of Jesus is by praying this prayer. God, would you just take away our sin and give us life? It's most certainly a sinner's prayer. If you're here and you don't know Jesus and you want to get to know Jesus, I will tell you, the only way you enter into the presence of Jesus as a non-Christian is by praying this prayer. Father, take away my sin and give me life. The only way that you're ever going to get backed out of that metaphorical but very real, realistic corner that I talked about earlier where you feel like the world is pressing against you and you're in a vice and your back cannot get any more cramped against that corner is to pray this prayer. Not just to pray the prayer, but to believe and to profess faith in this Jesus, that he is not just useful church, but he is radically and profoundly and eternally beautiful. He's beautiful. And while he was, while he's keeping the sun burning hot and long and breath and our baby's lungs up here on stage in the midst of everything that he's running, everything he has going on in his summer. Not a speck of dust will fall in this room that the Father does not determine where it lands today. And in the midst of that, he takes time out to say, you are my son and daughter. Come to me. Just sit with me. Just be present with me. And you're like, I don't know what to pray, Corey. You pray this. Father, take away my sin and just give me life. Help me understand your commands. Help me understand your word. Lord, give me your voice. All Psalm 119 is is a plea for the voice of God. The only reason that we get to pray this prayer, teach me, lead me, guide me, incline my ear, turn my eyes, remind me of who you are, take away my sin, give me life, is because this is the same prayer scenario that was played out in the garden on Jesus' way to the cross. Jesus didn't pray this prayer specifically, but here's what he did do. He comes to the Father on the way to the cross. Think about this. Jesus lived a perfect life in our place as our substitute, completely sinless, spotless in every single way. He comes into the garden talking to the Father. He says, Father, if there's another way, please remove this cup from me. If I don't have to go to the cross, God, give me another way. And if not, then your will be done. What's he saying in that? He's saying, teach me, lead me, guide me, Dad. Is there another way, Lord, teach me? Is there another way, Father, lead me in that? Is there another way, guide me? And the Father looks at Jesus Christ in that moment and says, absolutely not. The only way to get to redemption is through the cross. The only way to birth the church is through the resurrection. 
Absolutely not. And in that moment, the father literally looks at his son. He has to incline his ear and turn his eyes and remind him of God's covenant faithfulness, that Jesus is the only one that will ultimately keep all of the covenants together and fulfill every single aspect of God's voice. A voice literally puts on flesh, walks in perfection, not deserving a death. Ask the father, is there a way we can get out of this thing? He says, absolutely not. Right? Jesus going to the cross and resurrecting to new life is the only reason that we can say, Father, take away my sin and give me life. Apart from Jesus and the cross and the resurrection and the sinning of the Spirit, this prayer doesn't even exist. It's a prayerless prayer. It's a powerless prayer. And yet in Christ, because he's not just useful, church, but because he is radically and supremely beautiful in every single aspect and in every way, affords us this opportunity to pray this prayer. So if you don't know what to pray this week, I would encourage you to pray this. Teach me, lead me, guide me, incline my ear, turn my eyes, remind me, take away my sin, Lord, and just give me life. That I may finish well. Not just experience a season, church. Not just a season, but finish well. Amen? Cool. Stay with me. Let's take communion. So good. So every week we gather together, we take communion together. Uh, as a family, if you're unable to grab a communion cup on the way in, feel free to just come up here to the front and grab communion cups. It's totally culturally appropriate and normal uh, to do that. Come on up and get those. I want to read to you as I read to you uh, every week out of 1 Corinthians uh, 11, the apostle uh, Paul writes this of Jesus' account here in the final days. Uh, it says this. It says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, the bread. And he says, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is a new covenant, new promise in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so before you tear into those cups, let me just... Remind you, we don't take communion as a religious event. We take communion as a redemptive event. Uh, whenever we take communion, it's a reminder of what Jesus has done for us. What I love about communion in light of Psalm 119 and verses 33 through 40 right here is that communion brings this psalm to life for us. Like as you go to the table and you take communion, you're not just taking in a, a wafer and a little speck of juice, but really you're pleading here alongside the psalmist. and You're saying, teach me, lead me, guide me, incline my ear, turn my eyes, remind me. Do this in remembrance of me, Jesus says. And so when you take communion and you see the wafer that represents Christ's body that was broken for you, you see the cup which represents Christ's blood that was spilt for you, it's a reminder of the gospel. It's a reminder that we cannot save ourselves. We can't pray lavish enough prayers to save ourselves that only Jesus can say, save. And because he has provided the opportunity, we can then follow up here and say, take away my sin and give me life. And oh, by the way, you have. And so when you take communion, man, that's what you're celebrating. A new life that comes in Christ. For those of you who are saints, feel free to take that when you're ready.